welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our virtual podcast studio, Jean Gudinas, who is the Director of Information Resources and Collection Services at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, here in South Carolina. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Great, glad, you, glad you're joining us. So this is uh, part of a little series uh, that's part of the Library Voices SC podcast, where we are talking to library staff members in South Carolina about how their libraries are responding during COVID-19. So if you could tell us a little bit about what you do and the MUSC library. Sure. Well, I'm responsible for the research, acquisition, negotiation, implementation and maintenance of all the electronic resources for both the academic and clinical needs of the Medical University of South Carolina. And that's usually like a five-person job, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All condensed into little tiny me. Yep. As a little bit of background, we're a unique institution because we are comprised of the university, which is six professional colleges, and we have about 3,000 students, 700 some residents and more than 1700 faculty. Wow. Now, in addition to that, we also have the clinical side, uh, which includes eight hospitals, four of which, which are on our campus in Charleston, four regional hospitals, 100 some remote locations, and a very robust telehealth network. Now, I'm in charge of the collection development for this entire enterprise. So this ranges in resources to support the educational needs of the many different programs on campus to the point of care tools used within the hospitals. So we have been largely electronic for some time, although I I will give a shout out to our Wearing Historical Library because they are part of our MUSC libraries. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to like to say that if it's electronic, it's me. If it's print, it's for the archives. (laughs) And uh, you mentioned um, telehealth. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that entails? Of course. Uh, And there has been a great deal of interest with telehealth during this time period. Uh, Essentially, what it entails is a virtual visit with a practitioner. So let's say you were suffering from allergies or a bad cold as opposed to physically going to a hospital or one of the locations, you would create an account, sign in, and be scheduled a time to have a virtual meeting with a practitioner. I actually used it myself when I had a rash on my face. And while dermatology is not the best way to do telehealth, it was a lot more safe and comforting to do it than going to the hospital. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, Especially when, you know, even to right now, the place I get my hair cut, you know, has reopened. And even just standing outside, there's a hand washing station and the assistant 
uh, points a temperature gun at your forehead, and that's just to get a haircut. <laughs> so I can't imagine what it would be like at a, a health facility. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more things that are are, are going on. Um, but yeah, definitely during this time, telehealth is something that's extremely important. And how do you, as part of the MUSC library, support telehealth? Well, in terms of the resources that we provide, uh, especially with the point of care tools, there's resources for hospitals are interesting. Uh, when I say a point of care tool, I'm almost saying that literally. It's, for instance, you can have your cell phone, go to one of our resources, put in a couple of different symptoms, and it will give you a description as to what the problem is, what the treatment will be. These are meant to support the physicians when they are meeting with various patients, uh, especially in a either an urgent care or an ER setting, these are vital tools. When you need something just quick to, all right, they have X, Y, Z symptoms, let's see what we can eliminate and where we need to go from this step. So telehealth provides the opportunity, I mean, you're not gonna do telehealth if you have a life-threatening condition, right? but it allows the physicians to quickly and get a general idea as to what a problem might be and what the treatment should be. Mm -hmm. um, let's kind of uh, back up a little bit to um, around the middle of March, because as far as the South Carolina State Library goes, I know we were paying very close attention to all the public libraries and they were starting to one by one quickly close between around March 16th and March 19th. So can you tell us what, um, what your library was doing around that time? Well, the library was classified as non-essential, so we started working from home on March 16th. Now, with my team and my department, we already work in a virtual realm, so it really wasn't that hard of a transition for us. Mm -hmm. If anything, we had more problems with technology, like getting our interlibrary loan software to work from home. And truth be told, we knew it was a matter of time before we were mandated to work from home, so we had already been preparing. For instance, my uh, electronic resources specialist and I, we were testing all of our resources from off campus and ensuring that the mobile versions of our resources worked. And I know that the librarians were already coordinating with faculty with their educational needs. Which, uh, meant I was getting a lot of requests for electronic versions of textbooks. Mm, I can imagine. And you mentioned some of your staff. How many uh, people do you have on staff at the MUSC library? For my department, I have four people that work for me. And the library itself employs, I want to say, somewhere between 45 to 50. Okay. All right. So that's actually about the size of the South Carolina State Library. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about maybe since, you know, that, that closing time and having to work, work from home, tell us what it's been like on a day-to-day -day basis. What's been your regular day like working from home? Well, it sort of varied from like the immediacy of when we did have to start working from home to sort of the getting into the groove of working from home. Uh, when we first started, like I said, my team and I, we were already working in the virtual realm. So it took us, we 
pretty quickly adapted, but I started having to do a lot of correspondence with faculty. Uh, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that STEM textbooks are not always available electronically to institutions. Mm -hmm. And if they are, they're often bundled with other books or they're really expensive or they're only available as concurrent users. I mean, publishers make more money selling to the individual. And that's unfortunate because STEM textbooks are already some of the priciest books you can get. Mm -hmm. And when you say STEM textbooks, what does that mean? Oh, I, I apologize. Science, technology, engineering, and medicine textbooks. Okay, because I know there's also, in K-12, to there's STEM and STEAM. And so you hear, you know, it's like there's the, I think it's the science, technology, arts, and... Uh, I forget what the K to 12 version is, but it seems like there's, <laughs> there's lots of them now. Um, so when you talk about um, electronic resources, what, because uh, I know during this time, it, it's specifically unique in your capacity because you're part of a uh, medical institution. So, you know, what have you seen as the uh, primary resources being used more more so than, than others, I would imagine, epidemiology and vi virology and things like that. We are seeing, like you said, epidemiology, infectious diseases, uh, a lot of public health resources. And when I say resources, this includes electronic books, journals, and even databases. Uh, there, there's databases that are specific to specialties. And one of the interesting things that occurred was that, and these resources tend to be pricey, but towards the end of March, a lot of these publishers and providers, they were opening their resources for us to use for any institution that maybe they subscribe to one resource, but not another. Now, this has never happened before. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, because I know a lot of public libraries were, you know, enthralled when vendors started saying, well, you can have this extra for a couple of months, you know? <laughs> yep. And, you know, it's great to have access, but the question is what happens when that trial ends and you've got faculty that love the resource, but you don't have the money to acquire it. Mm -hmm. So... What I ultimately did is I, I created a LibGuide, which is uh, essentially a website for that's easy for librarians to use and to not have to deal with coding and other uh, extra tasks that most librarians don't want to do. And the, uh, the site had selected resources that I picked. So instead of allowing all this, you know, wealth of information to be available. I, I focused in on things that would be useful for the campus and that also I suspected I could potentially acquire if there was an interest. And when you asked, like, what's something that has been getting a lot of interest, uh, human anatomy videos and dissections, I was able to acquire a resource on an atlas of human anatomy. And it's something that you don't think about, but how are medical students going to practice if they're not in front of a physical cadaver? 
Exactly. They need to be able to see videos of the cadavers, which I don't think I need to, but... <laughs> But it has to be high quality. It has to be, you know, the level of quality that is going to be almost try, you know, duplicated in as in person. And you're not going to find that on YouTube. No, you are not. And I mean, I have taken a look at the videos just because I have a, I'm curious and sadistic at the same time. <laughs> so I also had to show my staff. I figured mm -hmm. if I subjected myself, they have to be as well. Right. right. But uh, the videos are absolutely spectacular. They have unembalmed human specimens that they're showing the movement of muscles. And it's fascinating, especially mm. since I'm not in medicine, but I work in a medical institution. Right, exactly. Um, one of the things that came through my mind when you were talking about the electronic resources, and of course, we're talking about having to have a lot of reliable technology during this time because most of us are working from home and telehealth is taking place. So bandwidth is, you know, at a premium. Um, have you had any kind of authentication uh, issues with any e-resources and, you know, how do faculty and staff um, go about logging into the resources? Do they do that through the library? They do that through the library. Uh, how our authentication works is you are tied to a net ID and password. And in order to get access to anything, you have to have a net ID and password. And obviously that password, you have to update and re-authenticate every 90 days. And it's the university's and institution's way of ensuring that one, you're still affiliated, and two, you are who you say you are. For the most part, we have not had any problems with authentication. There's the occasional person that for whatever reason, technology is just not on their side. But Overall, I am almost shocked at how well things have been since working remotely. Most of our resources have not had any interruptions in services. Uh, we have not had any, anything dramatic or drastic suddenly die on us. Again, occasional technology blips, but it's well, I should knock on wood right now because uh, I probably have just jinxed myself and the <laughs> library site's going to crash tomorrow and all the resources that people use are going to suddenly be inaccessible. Well, fingers crossed that they will remain accessible because you, you, your profession <laughs> needs them, I think, some of the most. Um, so what other kinds of specific resources maybe have you seen being used more than others? Well, definitely, like I said with the videos, just procedural videos in general has been highly used, uh, which makes sense. But if I were to compare, and I was comparing usage from six months ago, and a lot of this I also think is just faculty learning how to embed the videos into their learning management system, mm -hmm. learning how to be able to exist in a virtual realm. Uh, six months ago, while there were some online classes and some programs that existed solely online, a majority of classes were in session or were a hybrid of in person with some, you know, take this stuff online. It's almost funny to say, but I swear that people 
are more aware of the library and what we offer now than they ever had before. <laughs> it's my one silver lining through all of this. Yeah, and um, you know, as as you're you're talking about these um, issues and and dealing with resources, I I think a lot of people tend to forget that yes, there are hospitals involved, and um, this is a uni medical university we're talking about. But the whole health profession itself is one that is constant with continuing education. So no, it it's, seems like no matter at what level, and this is just me talking from looking from the outside, that, you know, your practitioners, your students, everyone, they're continuing to learn. And that puts a lot of extra emphasis on the, the library. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in terms of, you know, let's say you start at the first level of first year medical student, you have to get through the classes, then you have to get through board exams, then you have to go through a residency, then you become potentially specialized in a subject, then you have to continually recertify yourself in that specialty, you know, verify that you truly still know what you're doing, but you are also staying current with any new trends or any new developments within your specialty. And that's just one specialty. If you're a general practitioner, which needs to have an overall comprehensive knowledge of a great many things, you have a different set of skills that you have to acquire and maintain and continuously evolve. And you can't stay stagnant when you're a healthcare professional. You have to adapt with both technology, innovation, research, and sometimes it's hard to find the words of how much admiration I have for people that are in the healthcare industry and just what they do to maintain their position and to still continue to do it. Exactly. It, it is. There, there's a lot of admiration, especially within the last couple of months that we've certainly seen in the, in the news media. Um, one of the things that's popped into my head is how uh, maybe not during a time like this, or you can maybe talk about if you have had any um, contact, but do you ever have um, uh, library patrons from the general public and have they, you know, used you in the past? And then also, are they still trying to use resources or, you know, get in touch with you to ask questions uh, during um, the pandemic? So the general public, when we still had the physical presence on campus, patients' families would sometimes come in. And if you're in the building, you are able to access our resources. Um, it's off-campus access that's restricted to affiliated users. Sometimes the patrons would ask us questions about you know, if their family member is ha having such surgery or such procedure, you know, where can I find more about that? And generally, when you get those kind of questions, you tailor it so you're not giving medical advice or giving them the resources that you would give to, let's say, the surgeon that's doing the procedure. Mm -hmm. And that's where resources like the National Library of Medicine come in handy, where they have more public-facing and appropriate resources. I don't want to say the dumbed-down version, but something that the average person could understand. 
Well, yeah, you want to have be able to share something that's going to have it in layman's terms versus what a physician or a medical student is going to be coming across. And even between a medical student and a physician are two completely different uh, knowledge gaps. Mm -hmm. uh, the resource that I would recommend to a medical student would not be one that I would recommend to a physician. And even for something as simple as, you know, I, something about human anatomy, the wealth of knowledge that you get from day one medical student to practicing physician is, is huge. Just getting a little bit technical right now, and when we're talking about medical informatics, what kinds of subject headings have you seen being used more? Because I would imagine, you know, everything is looking for all the derivations of the the phrase, you know, um, we've got coronavirus, COVID-19, you've got human coronavirus, you've got SARS, and all these other terms. So have you had to really dig deep into, um, uh, what's the uh, MESH headings? That's it, yes. the medical, medical subject. Yep, I just yes. had a flashback to library school. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, uh, the medical subject headings. Now, I don't want to say, thankfully, I don't have to do too many searches nowadays, but I do eavesdrop, I say in quotations, uh, we use Microsoft Teams to be able to monitor between the departments. And I often will look in on the librarians page and their systematic reviews and the searches that they're doing. And it's interesting because life is progressing as normal. So while there are searches about COVID and about coronavirus and SARS, most people are requesting searches on things that they would request any old day. You know, a ran I don't want to say a random old day, but doing workshops within one of the databases and how to use the proper Boolean logic. Mm -hmm. um, when doing, you know, like a systematic review, there was one that I saw recently on spinal cord injury. Mm. And, you know, people are progressing with their research and with their specialties as they normally would. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to, to see how the more things change, the more they also stay the same. So, yes. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about, because I know, you know, I've, I've been hearing a lot of public libraries are, are doing a phased approach to reopening, and we are also at the um, South Carolina State Library. But how are you going to go about reopening your library? Well, very cautiously, mm. the campus, considering that we do have an active hospital with a wing dedicated to COVID patients, the campus itself is being very cautious with their phased approach. The library building is one of the few buildings where it's not dedicated to one specific college. So it's the gathering place and almost like the social place, typically. So we are considered the last phase. The last thing you want is to have people start gathering together. And so we are going to be, the library won't open until towards the end of summer term. Mm -hmm. Don't have a definite date yet, but um, I mean, well, so the campus has reopened with selected groups. And honestly, when, even when it, we do open in August, it'll probably be with a skeletal staff. We've been talking about like who can continue working from home 
uh, how to do things like handling the sanitizing of tables and equipment. And equipment was one of the large services that we offered when the camp, when the building was open. So how are we going to go about ensuring that those get sanitized between usage, even considering things like the returning of interlibrary loan books that had been borrowed before the pandemic started. Now we don't have a lending book collection. We do have archives, but the main building doesn't have books that you check out like a public library. So we don't necessarily have to worry about that, but we do have to worry about computer stations, um, getting the plexiglass in front of a service counter. And already we're drafting procedures, and I imagine that the next two months there will be many more procedures and policies that we've created. And naturally, this will mean many more Zoom meetings. <laughs> exactly. In fact, I was reading an article, and I, I sent it on to all of our uh, state library staff, that Zoom fatigue is real. You know, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things that you don't realize when you're in a group on, you're in a group meeting on Zoom, and you've got maybe six different you know, pictures and six different cameras going. And there's a psychology to not being able to make eye contact, you know, and not being right there with the person because you're looking in a different direction. And, you know, a lot of people don't really understand that that psychologically can be very draining. So, I mean, I've had days where I've had three different Zoom meetings and by 5 p.m. I'm completely wiped out. And not until I saw that article, I was like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> it's very true. And it's even more unsettling when you don't have the video, when people decide, I'm not going to show my face. Mm -hmm. I, for, I'm not quite sure why, but one of the things that I've been doing more lately is copyright sessions. I've had a lot of students and faculty reach out to me about teaching the basics of copyright. And the students never turn on their cameras. And it's, it's a little unsettling because I'm just talking to a blank screen and, and typically they will have themselves muted. Mm -hmm. And so I might make a joke and I'm yeah, waiting for, you know, <laughs> was that just not funny? I Right. <laughs> And then, you know, then I'll get like a chat a minute later and I've already proceeded on to a different topic. Yeah. And, and those, those kinds of delays we're not used to in real time because in real time we have, you know, that immediacy of facial expressions of, you know, all that. So, yeah, I would encourage anyone out there listening to look up, you know, Zoom fatigue and uh, find some interesting tidbits about that. So as we wrap up, um, I just want to make a reference to your library website and that is library.musc.edu. And what will folks find when they go there? Uh, well, you will find a lovely picture of our campus. You will find any new resources that we're highlighting, including the website specific to COVID. Uh, we just launched a new catalog, so you'll see that as a, hey, try out our new catalog. Uh, that was a fun year-long implementation process. I can imagine. And you'll also find the general information about MUSC. You could even, if you really want to see a picture of me, you can go under staff and about faculty and see me smiling. <laughs> well, great. I'm sure uh, a lot of folks would be interested, especially if they're interested in learning more about, not only about your library, but learning more about the different kinds of resources that 
a um, medical health uh, researcher like yourself uh, is, is using on a day-to-day -day basis. So I really appreciate your time and thanks so much for being with us today. No, thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners. You can find the Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.